Okay, you can open in your Bibles there to Matthew chapter 2. I don't know if you've ever met anyone famous. Uh, I haven't met very many famous people. Probably the most famous person I've ever met is Dick Butkus. And you guys know I'm a sports guy. Some of you are not. But actually, the way I met Dick Butkus is probably more amazing than the fact that I actually met him. I was working at the Rogue Gorge Bridge and Park there in Canyon City, Colorado. Some of you have been there on like tourist trips or whatever. But I'm in the back, and I'm like 15. I'm making sandwiches. That was my job. I made sub sandwiches. And I worked with this guy named Brendan, who did not know a thing in the world about sports. And I knew that, because that's all I knew about. And we had almost nothing to talk about. And we're in the back, and you could kind of hear the people that were coming up, and we're just working away. And my friend Brendan, who's never watched any sport in his entire life, says, that guy sounds like Dick Butkus. And I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? So we walk around the front of the store, and there is Dick Butkus. Apparently, he not only had a great NFL career, but he was on some TV shows. And my friend Brendan was pretty obsessed with the TV shows to the point where he could recognize the voice of Dick Butkus. So I call my manager, and I'm like, hey, me and Brendan are a little too nervous to approach this guy. Can you come introduce us? So our manager met him. And, and you know what? He was actually really kind to us. We talked about the last time he was out to the Rogue Gorge. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that this week as I thought about this. If we are sometimes amazed that, that a celebrity would kind of condescend to take time to, to talk with a little punk 15-year-old making sub-sandwiches, Right? If, if we're surprised that somebody like that would condescend to speak to someone like me, if we have a hard time being indifferent about something like that, how much more should we appreciate the fact that the Son of God has condescended, taken on flesh, to speak to us, or we might say to reveal to us who God is, and not only that, but to suffer for us, to suffer in our place. There's so much more glory in that than somebody who is really good at tackling other people. All right, so as we walk, as we kind of pick up there in Matthew chapter 2, we see that Matthew sort of skips over a lot of the things that we learned in the gospel of Luke when we were, when we were walking through that together. There's no mention about the census that kind of brought Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem in the first place. Nothing about the end being full, so there's no mention of Jesus being laid in a manger. There's no angelic appearances to the shepherds announcing the birth of Christ. He sort of skips over all of that. In fact, there's like two verses that deal with the birth event itself. At the end of chapter 1, where it says, Joseph knew or not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And then chapter 2 picks up, it's like, now after that happened. So all of those events are just kind of looked over in Matthew's gospel. What Matthew takes up, and again, we're not, uh, the, the gospels fit together, right, to, to give us a full picture of who God is and who Jesus is and what he, what he accomplished. So what Matthew wants to focus on and what he wants to pick up on is not necessarily the events surrounding the birth itself, but he's talked about who Jesus is as the son of David, the son of Abraham, God, very God, light of light. We just sang about it. And now he picks up in chapter 2 with this. How did people respond to Jesus? How did people respond to the birth of Christ? 
And that's what I want us to think about this morning from Matthew chapter 2. There's four different groups that are discussed in the text, and then their responses are given in the text. So we'll look at each one in turn. The first one is this. Herod is angry. Herod is angry at the birth of Christ. Now this is Herod the Great. Right As you read your Bible, if you're just kind of getting into the Bible, if you're just learning how to read your Bible, just know this. There's like six Herods in there, all right? So, um, you know, don't get confused when like one of them dies and then there's another Herod doing something else and then he dies and then one Herod gets eaten by worms and axe and then Paul's before another Herod. Like there's a bunch of them in there. This is Herod the Great, sort of the, the, the original Herod that these other guys descend from, the first of them. He's the one, if, if you've been with us, you know, some of you I know are, are, are just kind of popping in. It, it, but if you've, been, if you've been here with us when we were in the Gospel of Luke, you remember they, the, the disciples kind of looked out over the, the Kidron Valley and they looked at the temple and they said, man, this is such a magnificent structure. And well, Herod was the one that sort of began the, the, the remodel project of the temple. So he was uh, instrumental there. He was a savvy politician. He stayed in power for a long time in Rome, which, which involved, again, some, some level of savviness and, and sort of orchestrating that political world. But what he's no, most known for is for being paranoid about the opportunity to lose his power that drove him to great acts of wickedness. Right? And we'll, we even see that later on in Matthew chapter 2. Some of these wicked acts included even the, the, the taking out of his own children, who he thought might be a threat to his throne. He's known for taking out one of his, one of his favorite wives, is what the history books said. He actually, as he was approaching his deathbed, he gave an edict. He knew that he'd been such a tyrant that there'd be no... Um, weeping upon his death. So he passed a decree that when he died, a hundred Jewish leaders should be gathered up and slain so that somebody will be crying on the day of his death. This is a wicked, wicked man. And in his lust for power and in his willingness to do whatever it takes to maintain it, he's disturbed by the report that the wise men give when they roll up into Jerusalem and they say, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Well, here's King Herod, over this area of Judea. That's a threat to his throne. So Herod begins scheming there in verse 7. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's begins scheming how he might nail down the location of this royal king who has just been born in Bethlehem. We'll look at a minute how he figured that out. But he pretends as if he wants this info so that he too might do what they came to town looking to do. The wise men came looking to worship. So what does Herod do? He sort of, he sort of plays on that a little bit and says, hey, when you find out where he is, you let me know so I can then go and worship this newborn king as well. In reality, we know as the story plays out, that was not Herod's goal. That was not his 
plan. He wants to know where the, the newborn king is in Bethlehem so that he might ensure the death of Christ, so that he might ensure his death. Right? In fact, if you were to keep reading in chapter 2, that's exactly what Herod does. He grows infuriated that the wise men undermine him, and then he makes sure every young child in Bethlehem is put to death so that there's no longer this threat to his throne. See, Herod serves as the first in a long line of people who will respond to Jesus with suspicion, anger, and even murderous hatred. The reality is Herod would die not too long after the birth of Jesus, but he, but he sort of stands in this long line of people that would reject him and hate him and be angry with him. In fact, as Jesus kind of grew up and he began to teach, it did not settle people down. That even aroused their anger. And, and we've seen, even as we walk through Luke, that this culminates in, in this, this hatred growing so great that his enemies conspire to put him to death. And even this, right, even the death of Christ does not stop the hatred towards Christ. If you remember in the book of Acts, when Paul, the apostles, actually converted and Jesus shows up and there's this blinding light and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? We said last week that Jesus is, is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And we said he so unites himself with his people. He so identifies with them that Luke in the Gospel of Acts can say, if, if, if Paul were persecuting the church, then he's persecuting Christ because the church is the body of Christ. So Paul's real hatred is directed towards Jesus before he comes to know him. So we might say that this sort of this spirit of Herod continues on to this very day. You know, so much, I think, as we, as we think about who Herod is, what he was about, the evil acts that he committed, so much of the animating force behind Herod's anger was this suspicion, this, this paranoia of the new king. I wonder how many have rejected Christ out of suspicion. You know, this is, as I think about that, I think it's sort of the original seed that was sown in the mind of Adam and Eve back in the garden, that God is out to get you. He is holding out on you. He, is, he wants to take from you. And this is what Herod is afraid of. This new king is going to overthrow me and overthrow my rule. And so as we think about it, and as we sing about the birth of Christ this morning, it's a wonderful reminder that he is not one who has come to, to steal and to kill. Right? He, is, he, he is the one we learn from Scripture, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a reminder that God has given his very best to accomplish the very best. For whom? For his people. And the very best then, right? The thing that we needed the most, we talked about last week when the angel shows up to Joseph and says, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What did we need most desperately? It was salvation in Christ. You know, I've probably talked about this movie before, even maybe even the scene, but it reminds me of that scene in uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. 
the, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, where uh, Gandalf kind of comes to uh, Bilbo's little hobbit hole, right? And if you haven't seen this movie, just pretend I'm not crazy, all right? So <laughs> Gandalf's this wizard, and there's, there's these little creatures called hobbits. They're kind of like humans, but short with hairy feet, all right? So, uh, you know, Gandalf comes, and they've got this ring. Bilbo has discovered this ring, and this ring is so powerful that it, it, it can give you essentially the desires of your heart, and it sort of, it sort of teases out how the, the deceitfulness, our hearts are deceitful. And so even a good man with the ring becomes a tyrant if, if we're not careful. So the ring must be destroyed. And so Gandalf comes, he's going he's gonna to get the ring, give it to uh, Bilbo's nephew, Frodo, and, and they're going to go on this adventure and they're going to go destroy the ring. And as, as Bilbo's kind of like, he, he's decided he, he needs to do this. He knows he needs to do this, but he doesn't want to give up the ring, right? And he starts to get really surly with Gandalf. And he's, he starts to tell himself, like, I found it, I discovered it, it's my ring, why should I give it up? And then Gandalf, who's this super powerful wizard, he's actually more powerful in the books than he is even in the movie. Um, but in, in the movie, like, the, the lights kind of come down, Gandalf rises up, towers over Bilbo, the, the, the lights go dark, and Gandalf says, Bilbo, I'm not trying to rob you. And then it kind of quiets down, he settles down, he says, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. And so by taking sort of the very thing that Bilbo thinks will provide him joy and power and all the things that his heart desires, Gandalf says, I'm actually trying to help you. And if we're not careful, we look at Christ and we, we think we should be suspicious of him because he's calling, he's calling every person everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in him. And some people want to cling so tightly because they think sin is the thing that will bring them joy and contentment and peace. Yet we see here the, the lengths that God goes through to accomplish our salvation. You see, I think this hatred, this, this suspicion, it melts away when the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. Right Through His Word, we learn that God is completely good. And in the gospel, He's, com- he's accomplishing the greatest good. The greatest good. You see, the same Paul that we mentioned earlier that was persecuting the church and he hated Christ, he learned to say this, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? All things. So Herod, he's suspicious of this newborn king and he grows in his hatred thinking that this king has come to overthrow him. So as Matthew continues then to kind of trace these types of responses, right? Herod hates Jesus. Secondly, we see the the Jews that are around Herod in Jerusalem, they were troubled or they they were disturbed. You see, as the wise men say in verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod... The king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod's not the only one that's disturbed by the arrival of the wise men who are looking for this king, right? And these wise men, they've actually uh, apparently created quite a stir in the city of Jerusalem, the point where it actually captures the attention of someone like Herod. 
What you see in the text is this, this contrast, and we'll see it more clearly at the end here, but this contrast between the Magi, these people who kind of come from afar, and those who are in Jerusalem who should know better, right? The, the wise men come to worship, but Herod, the king of Judea, and all those in Jerusalem, they're disturbed. They're disturbed. It means they're troubled, or even it could, it could be translated, they are, they are terrified. And so you have, you, we saw the reason for Herod's terror, right? Because he lusts for power. But the Jews in Jerusalem are also disturbed. Now it's not that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Herod, right? It's not that they so loved this guy. He was a tyrant. They're not troubled for the same reasons, right? They despised Herod. He taxed them to no end. But they seem to have sort of this foreboding sense that when Herod is threatened, things do not go well. Right? So they're disturbed as well. And we saw, again, Herod doesn't respond well. And there's much suffering in Bethlehem as a result. So when they hear that there's a new king that's going to threaten their, this, this king Herod, then, man, they are... They are struggling. They're disturbed. They're terrified. And even so, right, even as we look at Herod's wickedness and what he's capable of doing there in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem, this is not the right response. Right? This is not the, response, the right response to the birth of Christ. They should have been overjoyed. They should have trusted that the Lord is able to protect not only them as his people, but his son, the king from a tiny little man like Herod, right? They shouldn't have been so terrified of what Herod could do and how he might respond that they are disturbed. You see, there's this, if you were to kind of study all of Matthew chapter 2, there's these, there's these parallels kind of between the life of Moses and the life of Christ, right? And so I, I think, again, as this sort of develops throughout the chapter, we, we might think about it this way. If God could save Moses, right, as a tiny little baby against the the fearful, suspicious Pharaoh who didn't want any more male children to be born because these Israelites are going to get too powerful and they might overthrow us, right? If God can protect Moses in that environment and save Moses, and if God can raise up Moses to deliver his people from slavery and bondage to Egypt, then surely he can protect this king, the king of the Jews, who is a son to God, right? That a king in Israel was to be a son to represent the interests of the Father. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son who has come. These people in Jerusalem may not understand that yet, but they should have known that God can act to preserve his king even from the fearful and power-hungry Herod, and he can work through this son. He can work through this king to deliver his people from tyranny. Right? In fact, Moses even predicted that there would be a prophet like him. Right? And again, I think that's what Matthew plays up in chapter 2. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Right? He'll come from Israel. We know he came from Judah. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So that's what 
Moses' son. There's going to be a prophet like me. He's going to rise from among you, and you should listen to him. And like side note in your own mind, what happens when Jesus kind of goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah are there, and God speaks, and he says, this is my beloved son. What should you do to him? Listen to him. Right? So what happens in, in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment. He is that prophet that was promised long ago. Moses was just like a foreshadow. Right? We, we think, man, what would it be like to cross the Red Sea and for the, the water to part and to walk across on dry land and the water crashes in on, on the Egyptians there? That's nothing. That's just a small glimpse into what the work that Christ has come to accomplish. He has come to accomplish a greater deliverance. Right? Not freedom from physical oppression or slavery, but from the bondage of sin and death. He has come to save His people from their sins. Yet in Jerusalem, this... The, the fear of the Lord that should have been present and this longing for the redemption that had been promised long ago, it's sort of superseded by this desire to kind of maintain the status quo. Right? Let's not upset Herod. He can do a lot of damage and make our lives miserable. And this is just a, a, a glimpse of what will continue to be true of Jerusalem. Right? They will continue to reject Christ. In fact, Jesus will stand overlooking Jerusalem and say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, uh, your children together as, hens, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So again, at Christmas time, what do we get to do? We, in many ways, we do this every Sunday. Right, but in some ways, we focus specifically here that we get to reflect that Jesus is the prophet that's greater than Moses, that accomplished a greater deliverance, led a greater exodus. Again, not through the Red Sea, but what did, what did Jesus endure? He endured the wrath of God for all those who would rely on His work, admit their sin and turn to Him. This is then... In Jerusalem, the birth of the king. And as we look back on these events, not a time to be troubled, not a time to be disturbed. It should have been a time of great rejoicing that Christ has come into the world. Right, so Herod's angry. The Jewish residents of Jerusalem disturbed. What does Herod do then? He kind of calls the chief priests and the scribes together to see, what do you know about this king? We might say the chief priests and the scribes were indifferent. Right? We've, we've dealt plenty with like who the chief priests and the scribes are, right? Religious leaders in Israel. Scribes were like religious lawyers. They knew the Old Testament. They could argue it with others, make their points. Right? We've actually seen in the scribes and Pharisees that it's in the chief priests here that it's possible to have a knowledge of the content of God's word without a love for God, without a concern for Him. Right now, please don't misunderstand me. I would never pit those two against each other. Right? I think, I think sometimes people make that mistake. It's possible to know a lot about God from the Bible, 
and, and not love him. So then people kind of make this logical leap that doesn't make any sense. Like, therefore, who cares what you think about him? Just love him. That's not how, that's not how love works, right? You, you get to know somebody greater and greater. So I'm not pitting knowledge against the word, just pointing out the possibility of, of possessing knowledge and being puffed up with pride rather than humbly understanding and coming to know and love Christ. And that's what's true of these chief priests and these scribes. Herod inquires of them, you know, where, where is this Messiah? Where is this king to be born? And they have the knowledge. Right? And they put their knowledge to use, actually, at least in, in the worst sense. They tell the tyrant where they can find the king. Right? Well, how did they know that? How did they know that this king will be in Bethlehem? Well, because it had been prophesied hundreds of years before Christ. What Matthew does is he kind of takes Micah 5.2, the content of Micah 5.2, and he kind of, I would say, like paraphrases it. All right, he wants to highlight certain things that kind of are pulled out of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You might say he's bringing out the sense of the passage, emphasizing certain things. He wants to point out the significance of Bethlehem, right? Because as John even alluded to in his prayer, Bethlehem at the time of Jesus, not nondescript. Right? It's a nondescript city. I kind of want to like pick a city in the hills and pick on it a little bit, but there's probably somebody from there, so I better. Bethlehem was, right, it was just a city. It's a small town. But we just sang, right? Okay, 2,000 plus years later in South Dakota, we just sang about Bethlehem, right? Ultimately, we're singing about Christ. But we sang, oh, come ye, all ye faithful, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. So how did this nondescript city, what happened here that we're now singing about it and Christians all over the world this morning are singing about what went down there in Bethlehem? Well, in God's wisdom and because he works for his own glory and not according to the way we might work or according to human wisdom, this small town a few miles outside of Jerusalem becomes incredibly important, incredibly significant. And Micah 5.2 tells us why. Let's look at what kind of Matthew, I mean, you can turn to Micah 5.2 if you want to kind of compare, but let's look what Matthew does here there in verse 6 when he paraphrases here. Oh, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So he's highlighting that there, there's a couple different Bethlehems in, in this region of Israel. He's saying, this is Bethlehem of Judah. Remember, Matthew was like making it a significant point that Jesus came from the line of Judah because all the way back in Genesis, Judah was promised, the scepter will, will kind of remain in your tribe, right? So he's kind of drawing in that point again. And who eventually descended from Judah? It was King David. And King David was given this promise that we looked at a couple weeks ago. If you remember, you know, one of your descendants will have an eternal throne, will rule forever. And we realize that there's only one way that can happen. It's the incarnation. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God taking on flesh, right? So that he might be a descendant from David, but he's God, very God. He's 
fully God and fully man so that he can descend from David and he can rule forever. Right? That's this part of the significance of the incarnation. So Matthew's helping us to see the, the importance of Bethlehem because before Christ was born there, David was born in Bethlehem. And David was promised this descendant that would come and rule on this eternal throne. And in the same city, the city of David, here comes the Messiah. You know, as we think about like what he's quoting Micah 5, right? As we, as we, so as we think about like what Micah was thinking while he was writing. Okay, so when we interpret the Bible, we want to be asking, like, what did it mean to the original reader? Okay, well, what was going on when Micah was writing? Well, when Micah was writing, Israel had already been divided, right? You may remember after Solomon, the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom has been overrun by Assyrians. Judah's about to be overrun by Babylon. I mean, there's threats on every side in Judah. It's a bleak time. It's a time of judgment. It's a time where much of what Micah does is just kind of recall the failures of the people. In fact, in Micah 3.8, he sort of gives you his purpose statement. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. What's he, what's he going to do? To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his son. And so much of Micah, you just get this negative, like, here's your transgression, here's your Sin. But despite this, right, Micah looked forward to a time where deliverance might come. And it would come from one who was born in Bethlehem. A ruler who will shepherd the people. So again, as we think about, what, what are we, why are we here this morning? Right? We all have family engagements today, or many of us have family engagements. What are, we, what are we doing? Well, it's a celebration of the fulfillment of Micah 5.2. Right? That Jesus, the eternal Son of God, entered into His creation in the most humble way so that He might be fully man and completely identify with us. And that child born in the most humble fashion is the Son of David. And He won't be a, he won't be a despot like like Herod. He won't rule like a tyrant. Like Herod and so many of the other rulers that followed him and even the ones who preceded him utterly failed. Utterly failed. But what will Christ be like? Well, Micah 5.2 says he will be a shepherd. He will, he will be a shepherd to his people. Right? Our shepherd this morning, yours if you know him. Jesus said of himself in the Gospel of John that I am the good shepherd. Right? I am the good shepherd. And he's the good shepherd, he says, because he lays down his life for his sheep. And he's the good shepherd because the sheep know him and he knows his sheep. And when Jesus in John chapter 10 is trying to give us an idea of what that means, what does it mean that, that he knows the sheep and they know him? How do... How, how do I understand this closeness that Christ has with His people? He says, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. The sheep know me, and I know them, just like I know the Father. And the Father knows me. If you're 
if you're a Christian this morning, when Jesus wants to demonstrate the closeness that his incarnation, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, when he wants to, to demonstrate the closeness he has with his people, the sort of reconciliation, the unity he shares with them, he chose the relationship he shares with his Father. I wonder if that's how you think about Christ. I wonder if that's how you think about him this morning. That it's the, the, the sort of closeness that Jesus shares with the Father and the Father shares with the Son. And it's true because of what He's done, not because of anything we, we've been able to produce in ourselves. That sort of relationship is true and it exists because Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. What a king. Right? What, what a ruler, a ruler who will shepherd and a shepherd who goes above and beyond what any normal shepherd would do lays down his life for his sheep. So as we come to the chief priests and the scribes, and they, they knew the text. They knew the text that this, this shepherd king would come from Bethlehem and he will rule his people. Right? They had the text in Isaiah 53 that said this, this servant, this, this king is also a servant who will lay down his life for uh, his people. You'd think that they would be excited that this was possibly coming to fruition, but they did not act. Like they were completely indifferent. They didn't go. They didn't travel with the wise men to go find the king. We see that eventually their, their indifference turns to hostility and hatred, but not yet. Not yet. At this point, they just don't do anything. Perhaps they viewed this as another false alarm. Other people would kind of come up claiming to be, I'm the Messiah, then he'd die and whatever. He'd sort of pass off the scene. They, they might have thought, it's another false alarm. One more guy claiming to be the Messiah. One way to reject Christ is to be indifferent to him, to think it's not worth the time to consider him. And that's what the chief priests and the scribes are guilty of here. They have the text. They don't pursue it. For us this morning, Jesus is worth rejoicing over. Right? He's worth putting to death our indifference. He's worth investigating through getting to know Him through the Word of God and through fellowship together as a church, through hearing preaching, through singing songs about Him together, through conversation. He's worth it. He's worth it. So Herod was angry, the Jews were disturbed, the leaders were indifferent, but the Magi, the wise men, they worshipped. Right? So one group stands out among the other three. They're sometimes called the Magi, they're sometimes called the wise men. They seem to have the, the purest motives. They are not indifferent to the arrival of the Messiah. In fact, they've traveled quite far. The chief priests and scribes would have had to travel five miles. They don't do that. The wise men have come perhaps hundreds of miles away to investigate this king. They are not troubled. They are not looking to kill him. They are looking to worship. Now there's a lot that we don't know about these guys. right? And I don't want to 
I don't like to be the guy that's like makes fun of songs or like nativity scenes, right? I'm not going to be that guy. All right. But I will, I will say this because there's some artistic license that I've learned to like kind of give people. But, but we've, we do know this. We don't know that there were three. All right. We don't, we don't really know the number of the wise men. The, the three comes probably from the number of gifts that they brought. Like maybe each one brought one gift. That would mean there are three of them. But I don't know. I don't know that three guys could roll up into Jerusalem and upset Jerusalem and get the attention of the king. Right? So I kind of wonder if it was a much more significant number of people that have traveled this distance to figure out about the king. Now these men were, were likely sort of high-ranking officials, right? kind of the like cult religion and po- politics. Those were like all kind of intermingled, right? So these guys were astrologers. They sort of studied the night sky and tried to figure out things that were going on. Right, but they probably were actually high-ranking people in whatever country they came from. They seem to be people of means as they come with gifts to offer this new king. Again, they were students of astrology. Some were, some were charlatans, right? The, more like a magician, you might think. Some were genuine seekers of knowledge. We don't know everything about these guys. We do know they were from the east. Right? That's actually the ESV, I think, translates it best when it says, We saw his star when it rose. Right? Some translations say, We saw a star in the east. That's why we sing the first Noel. I think it's, We saw his star when it rose. They see the rising of the star. Then they come from the east to find Jesus. Right? But we don't know. Anything more explicit than that about these guys? They may have very well been from Babylon, given that you know Judah was taken out of uh, Jerusalem from uh, by Babylon, kind of hauled off to Babylon. There seemed to still be some Jewish influence there. Perhaps because of the Babylonian exile, they have a sense of this coming king. Maybe they had Micah five at their disposal. We do know this: that they were Gentiles, which is non-Jewish people drawn to Christ through the appearance of a great light. Gentiles drawn to Christ through the appearance of a star. Now, astrology, right, not to be confused with the science of astronomy, is like mocked in the Old Testament, and rightfully so, right? The thought that the alignment of certain celestial objects determine human affairs that needs to be rejected, right? But God, in His kindness, drew these stargazers to Himself through the use of some star in the night sky. Right? There's lots of debates, right? There's lots of debates about the star and how it came about. Some have argued, well, it might have been constellations kind of coming together or maybe a particularly plant particular planet was bright that year but i don't know i mean the star in verse 9 says it rose and went before them and settled over the place where jesus was so i kind of feel like this is just a miraculous work of god through a great light he drew gentiles to himself to point his way to the sun to point their way to this king 
right? After that star kind of, kind of moves and it settles over the place where Jesus is, verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They knew their journey had come to an end. They found the king entering the home where Mary and Joseph were at this point. You know, this a number of months or even a year or so could have passed between the birth of Christ and this, this event. We don't know for sure. But when they entered the house, we know this, they fell down and they worshipped. They fell down and they worshipped. Foreign dignitaries, men of, men of high status, fall down before a child, fall down before a baby. What a picture, right? Admitting that Jesus is of higher station than they are. Think about what they said when they came into Jerusalem. They didn't say, hey, where's this little baby who will one day become a king? They actually said, where is this child born king of the Jews? And so when they're in the presence of the king, they fall down and they worship. Now, I'm not suggesting they know everything they should know. Right? You might bow to a normal king. I'm not suggesting they understand everything at this point, but they know enough to fall before a baby. And notice in the text, just really quickly, that it, Matthew, there's so many good things that God does in His Word just to teach us. Like when you hear two different things, like should Mary be worshipped? It's like Matthew puts this in the text. They walk in, it says they saw Mary and Joseph and they fell, or they saw Mary and Jesus and they fell before Jesus and worshipped Him. There's no, there's no like worship them in the text. All right. They also present gifts to Christ, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some, some argue that there's, there's a significance to each of these gifts, kind of symbolism to each of these gifts. Gold represents his royalty. Frankincense, his divinity. Myrrh anticipates his, his death. I, I don't know. I don't know that the text sort of can handle that much speculation. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not positive on that. I do think it's meant to recall Isaiah 60, though. I do think that's the point of these gifts, and I think it's the point of the star, because Isaiah 60 says this, the nations will come to your light. The nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So what's going on? God had promised that, that through this light, it was, should, should have been Israel. Israel should have been the light to the nations. They failed. But through this light, God has guided royal representatives of the nations to come to Himself, and they come bearing gifts. Right? The, 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 point, of, the point of this is, the, as I mentioned earlier, kind of got ahead of myself, but the people who should have known better discarded Christ. It's the Gentiles from far off who come. The first people to fall down and worship Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, Gentiles. People from the nations. So even those who had the light of Revelation, they had Micah 5 too. They had Isaiah 53. They had all these, uh, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, all of these promises of how Christ would come and where He would come and what He would do. All the light, yet they rejected the light. And so God guides 
the nations to himself through the use of this light, and they come and they worship Jesus. It's the Gentiles who respond appropriately to him. Herod, suspicious and angry. Jews, worried about what this might mean and Herod's response. Religious leaders, indifferent. But the Magi, the wise men, they fall down. They fall down before him. And this is how we respond to Christ. Right? This is how we respond to Jesus when we think about the true meaning of Christmas, that Jesus has come into the world, that we might know and love God through Christ. And that's what, like, to, to worship carries with it this idea to, to place value on someone or something. Right? It's the assigning of worth. Not that we, not that we give worth to Christ, Right? but that we recognize He alone is worthy. He among everything and everyone is worthy. He's worthy of our love and affection. To worship is to see Christ correctly. It's to praise Him. It's to rejoice in Him. It's to, if, if you think about what the disciples are sent out to do, how is God going to, uh, you know, He brought the nations to Himself. Now He's going to send the disciples out to the nations, and, and nations are going to worship Christ. What are they going to need to do? They're going to need to observe all things that Christ has commanded them. So it's to praise Him, it's to rejoice in Him, it is to obey Him, it's, it's to use our words, it's to serve Him, to lay down our lives, to give everything up in service to Him. Everything I am, everything I do, all the energy that I've been given, all the gifts and the talents, disposable for the service and work of Christ. There is nothing, there is nothing and no one more worthy than Christ. How could there be that the Son entered creation so there can be nothing greater than Him? He is God in the flesh. Right? What could matter more than that? Okay, so I want to end by speaking to the kids for a minute. All right. Kids, I know it's been long. I was just telling somebody before church, I'm trying to preach shorter. It didn't work this morning either. All right. Listen, I know we all handle Christmas differently, right? We all have different traditions and different things we do. But for those of you that are going to wake up and there's going to be presents maybe under a tree tomorrow morning and your dad or your mom or your grandma and your grandpa are going to say, let's stop. Let's read Luke 2 maybe, maybe Luke 1 and 2. And you look at the number of verses in Luke 1 and 2. What? What's happening? Here's what's happening. There's going to be a worship war in your heart. Okay, there's going to be a war going on in your heart, and you're going to want to elevate stuff above Jesus. Right? And I know that because I do the same thing. So what do we do in these moments? Because your mom and dad have these moments too. What do we do? We need to renew our thinking. We need to think true things in our mind. We need to call time out, right? And we need to consider Jesus' humility in coming to this earth. Consider that He is worthy. Thank Him for His life, His death, and His resurrection. Right? We remember all that Christ has done for us to make us children of God and then go enjoy the good gifts that God has given you.
All right, let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful as we consider Christ. We are unworthy. Yet when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son. And we thank you for him and for his work. Lord, help us to keep Christ central in our own hearts and thoughts. May we worship him in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.